All right. So that was a nice long section of scripture. Hopefully, uh, you are still following along with us. Um, If you do not have a Bible in front of you and ready to roll, it is going to be extremely helpful to have something to look at while we go through this because there's two chapters, there's a lot of different sections, there's verse breaks going on, and so I really would encourage you to have something in front of you that you can look at in the text with us this evening. So last week we took off from our and so today we are going to get right back into it and cover these two chapters, which all kind of follow the same set of ideas or set of thoughts. But as you notice, there's a lot of verses and it's two chapters. So we're not going to be able to do verse by verse exposition through this text. We're going to do kind of like a little bit of a flyover of the ideas that are contained in here and look at the sins of Israel, what they're guilty for, and what is the heart, the theme, the message that Hosea has in these two oracles that he's delivering. So in 9 and 10, uh, really what you're getting is the story of the tragedy of Israel. So the first part of chapter 9 up until verse 9, so chapter 9 verses 1 through 9, you're getting the, the picture of Israel's current ignorance in the moment that they find themselves in. In verse 1, you see, rejoice not, O Israel, implying that they're doing something that they're not supposed to do. They're rejoicing in the current moment, and they're not able to sorrowfully mourn as they ought to be doing. They're rejoicing at an inappropriate time. And so this paints the picture, this sets the scene in those nine verses of Israel's ignorance of the current moment and what's actually going on. They're blind to it. And then uh, verses uh, 10 through 17 of chapter 9, are going to paint the picture uh, of one of three metaphors. So there's a total of three. This is the first, and it talks about grapes in the wilderness. Israel is compared to grapes in the wilderness, and we'll unpack that when we get there. It's one of three metaphors that's going to communicate a similar theme or a similar idea. The second of those three metaphors is the luxuriant vine, which is the opening of chapter 10. You can see it in chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is described as a luxuriant vine. And then the last break we're going to take is uh, Israel being described as the trained calf or the trained heifer, and that is in verse 11 of chapter 10. So there's three metaphors that are going to unpack the ideas that are introduced at first uh, in the first section of verse 1 through verse 9 of chapter 9. So it's going to be a historical look over Israel, where they've come from, where they're going to, according to God's account. Uh, But first we have to find Israel in the current moment where they're at now when Hosea delivers this oracle to them. So in verse 1, he says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. So what we get in that first line, rejoice not, is kind of taking us right into the middle of a scene of action that's happening. So you can imagine Hosea is doing his faithful ministry on a regular basis, and that at some point in the year, Israel is celebrating one of their regular feasts. This could be any of the harvest feasts. Typically, they would celebrate this at the end of a harvest season. And so Hosea walks in, he sees all of Israel rejoicing on the threshing floors, rejoicing over the prosperity of the land, and he says, this is wrong. You should not be rejoicing, and he's going to then go ahead and give them all the reasons why. So Israel is currently rejoicing at a certain feast, and they're most likely practicing syncretism, which is, again, when you worship both Yahweh and Baal in conjunction together. They're co-worshiping God, who has revealed himself to them, and Baal, which to mix those two together is really not to worship God at all, but they think that they're worshiping God, and so they do these practices together. So at one of these celebrations, Israel is rejoicing, they're celebrating together, and then Hosea comes in and he says, rejoice not for these reasons. The primary reason he gives is because they have forsaken their God. This is something that we got a picture of early in Hosea with uh, uh, Gomer, who leaves Hosea and is unfaithful to him. And he says that all of, the pros- all of the prosperity, all of the good things that you have, all of the abundance that you have, is actually stuff that I have given you. And just like that, Yahweh has given Israel a bunch of prosperity, a bunch of great land, fertile harvest, in his common grace to them. And they turn around and they celebrate with Baal 
to celebrate Baal's faithfulness and Baal's prosperity and Baal's goodness to them. So they have primarily forsaken their God, and they have gone after the worship of Baal. And he says that they have forsaken their God in this way, that they loved a prostitute's wages. And a prostitute's wages is spelled out then later that the threshing floor and the wine vat that they are getting from the prosperity of the land, this is the wages of a prostitute. They think that they are doing things to earn favor with God, and they are earning a wage, so to speak. But the wage that they're earning, Hosea identifies not as the wage of God's abundance to them, it's the wage actually of a prostitute, that they're getting wicked money, wicked harvest, wicked uh, abundance from the land. And the thing that pollutes the harvest, the thing that pollutes the abundance, is the fact that they identify Baal as the God who has provided these things to them. They have forsaken God, and so in doing this, when they're celebrating this harvest, they worship both Baal and Yahweh in conjunction together. And then he gives them the punishment. So he's now given them the indictment, the judgment, the evidence for what they're doing. And then in verse 3, he says, Since you don't want to remain with me, you shall not remain in the land of the Lord. The very land they're collecting the harvest in right now is God's promised land that he gave to the people of Israel. And he says, if you won't remain faithful to me, that's fine. You just can't stay in my house. You can't just keep the things that I've given you, right? And so I'm going to kick you out of the land. But Ephraim shall actually return to Egypt. They're going to return to their initial picture of bondage. He's not talking about the actual nation of Egypt. He's talking about the idea of Egypt, which is the idea of bondage, the idea of slavery. And the reason we know that is because in the next line, he clarifies in Hebrew parallelism, he clarifies what he means by Egypt. And he says, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. So we're not led to believe that they're going both to Egypt and to Assyria. What we're led to believe is Egypt was the type of nations that will put Israel in bondage, put Israel in slavery. And Assyria is the modern expression of that type of nation. And so they're going to go to Egypt into captivity. And what that looks like on the ground is they're going to actually be taken over by Assyria and carried off to worship Assyria's gods, to worship Assyria's king and to serve Assyria's purposes. And the reason is because they've already left God. This is not God forsaking Israel while they're being faithful to him. This is God just going in real life and just letting Israel have what they want, which is that their hearts are far away from God. They don't want to worship him anyway. So he says, you know what, that's fine. I'm going to go ahead and remove myself from you since you don't even want to be with me anyway. And you can go to your gods, you can go to your nations, and you can go ahead and fully participate and what you want anyway, which is to not worship me, you want to worship Baal. So go with the nation that worships Baal and serve them. He says, essentially, if you won't return to the Lord, then you will return to Egypt. And if you remember Israel's history, they actually were delivered out of Egypt by God's sovereign intervention. And now, in a very tragic state of regression, they're going back to their former lives. They're going back to their old sin. They're going back to their old ways. And what this paints a picture of for us is that there's really no neutrality with God. You can't be neutral to the God of heaven. You are either running after God, worshiping him, serving him faithfully, or you are leading yourself back into Egypt. There is no neutrality. And the world would have us believe, and the common expression is, and especially in America, is that there's some large sum of people who are living their lives, they're generally good people, they really, they're good, they want to know God, but they just haven't, you know, had that encounter, that experience with him yet. And so we're led to believe that there's this abundance of people that is really good, they love God, although they don't serve, faithfully serve the God of the Bible. But what we really know, according to scriptures, is if you're not serving Yahweh, you're not with him faithfully, you're with Egypt. There is no neutrality. There's no people who stand neutral before God. Jesus paints the picture in the New Testament that there is a narrow way, and there is a broad way. There's no middle way. There's no three options. There's two options, a narrow way and a broad way. And you can either be with Yahweh in his promised land, following his statutes, his commandments, obeying him faithfully, or you can go back to Egypt. Those are your two options. There is no third option. There is no neutrality when you stand before God. You are either justified in right relationship with him, or you are condemned and being led into bondage. Paul paints the picture in Romans, in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, verses 15 and 23, he says that you're either a slave to sin 
or you're a slave to righteousness. Those are your two options. You can either choose to be a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul identifies himself as in most of his letters. I am a servant of Christ Jesus, first and foremost. Or you can identify yourself falsely as autonomous, and really what you're saying is, I'm actually a slave to sin. Those are your two options. And we would like to believe that we could choose to serve God or be autonomous or be a slave to sin, but you're either a slave to God or you're a slave to sin. You are worshiping something in your daily life and your daily actions. And the really interesting thing is that all those other gods are really bad gods, as we're going to come to find out in this text. In verse 4, he says, Because they mix worship of Yahweh with worship of Baal, they shall not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. They can't do it. Because although they might actually pour out the drink offering of wine to the Lord, it's not in worship to him. They might be doing the action, but it's not the heart posture. And their sacrifices will not please him, despite the fact that they're probably following the sacrifices as they ought to do. Their sacrifices will not please him because he doesn't want sacrifices. He wants their heart. And it shall be like mourners bred to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread will be primarily for their hunger only, and it will not come to the house of the Lord. See, Israel was responsible for taking up harvest and then delivering their first and their best to the Lord in worship to him. And what they do instead is instead of bringing it to the temple, which has been established, they go and they worship the grain and the wine and they take all this abundance and all this harvest and they squander it in Baal worship. They throw all these celebrations, all these feasts, all these festivities. And God says, you can go ahead and have that. You just need to know it's not worshiping me when you go bring that grain. You're just going to be satisfying your own hunger. There's no worship there. It might look like worship, but it's not. You're just, you're eating, right? A modern day picture of this would be if you're not a Christian and you take part in communion, there's nothing happening there that's of significance. You're just wetting your taste buds. That's it. That's all you're doing because there's nothing that's actually of substance. There's no heart posture. There's no relationship there. So you can do all the actions, but you cannot faithfully be in relationship with the Lord without a true heart posture, without a true relationship. And just because God is a just God and because he's a good God, we know that the punishment that they're going to receive is going to fit the crime that they committed. And so he says, what will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord, which is when they're worshiping at, at this moment? For behold, they are going away for destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their, their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The punishment that they get is they're going to be gathered up by Egypt. Rather than being the people of God who are gathered up by the Lord God, they're going to be gathered up by their actual master, their actual God, which is Egypt. They're going to be bound up and uh, gathered by their slavery. And unfortunately, what that looks like, again, Egypt is a type Assyria is going to come in a handful of years here and completely wipe off Israel off the map and carry them into bondage and into captivity with them. So that is the judgment. The judgment, the punishment, fits the crime that they committed. They want to worship those gods. Those gods are going to faithfully gather them up. This is giving them exactly what they want because God is a just God. And he says then in verse 7, the days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it. And then you'll see this weird change right at the end of that line. And then he transitions sharply and he says, the prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. Now what you need to know is this is not Hosea declaring the oracle of God saying the prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because he's referring to himself as the prophet. What he's doing is likely in this oracle, the people of Israel interject because he says the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. And probably at this point, the people who are listening to him are going, hold on, hold on. We're celebrating a feast right now. God's cool with us. We're okay. You don't have to keep saying that. Actually, this guy's a fool. He's a nut. Don't listen to him. He's not a prophet of God. So this is happening. He's delivering an oracle. Someone stands up and starts uh, getting rowdy, and they're saying, they're interjecting. They're saying, we don't agree with you. And so then he quotes back to them what they said, and then he declares it's actually because of their sin that they're saying these things because they're blind to the prophet of God is. He says, the prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. It is because of the sin of Israel that they cannot see the word of God 
delivered by the prophet to be the true word of God. And if you read about Israel's history, this is actually true that oftentimes there's both true prophets of God and false prophets of God. And what you can really identify as the true and the false prophet is usually the true prophet is not saying good things about the sin. And the false prophets are really cool and very comfortable with sin. They're very tolerant of it. And even today, 2,000 years after the church has been established, you can usually recognize who is faithfully teaching the word of God and who is not by your level of comfort in what you hear. If you hear the teaching and they are comfortable with sin, they are comfortable with wickedness, they're comfortable with iniquity, that is not what the Bible teaches. But if people are tempted to say, that person's a nut, that person's crazy, there's no condemnation for you, there's no judgment coming, what you need to know is those people are like the people of Israel here where they do not recognize that the words that the prophet is delivering is actually the words of God. People are very comfortable with Jesus' teaching and when he's healing people, and then as soon as he starts talking about hell, everyone gets uncomfortable. And he starts saying things, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you will have no inheritance with me. And then he loses the vast majority of his disciples at that moment. You need to know there is real judgment for the sin of the people. There is real punishment that is coming for sin. Hosea declares the destruction, and he gets interrupted, and then he quotes it back to them, and then he declares himself to be the watchman over Israel. He's saying, the reason I'm saying these things to you is not because I want you to agree with me, but because I have been charged with the duty of a watchman. I'm not delivering a good message, but I'm delivering a true message, which is that the destruction is coming. And we've looked at the role of the watchman in the past. But here he says, the prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways, and hatred is in the house of his God. What he's saying is, I am the watchman. I don't care how you respond, but I have been charged with the duty of being faithful to the message that I have delivered to you. I am not responsible for how you respond to the message, but I am responsible for faithfully delivering the truth. And as such, we as Christians in the New Testament are supposed to deliver the gospel faithfully to people regardless of how they might receive it. Our charge is to be the watchman, to deliver the message faithfully. We are not responsible for how people respond to it, although we plead and we beg for people to respond appropriately, as Hosea does. The reason we have so many chapters of oracles saying the same thing over and over is because Hosea is coming again and again publicly to the people, pleading with them to return back to Yahweh, their God preaching faithfully the punishment that is coming, but also preaching faithfully for them to return back to right relationship with the Lord. But because Israel is corrupt and because the prophetic system at this point is corrupt as well, he, the watchman, has a fowler snare in all his ways. People are trying to catch him in sin. They're trying to catch him in lies. And hatred is in the house of his God meaning he doesn't even have a home in the temple of Jerusalem because even the temple and the priests who serve there are so wicked that the actual, true, real prophet of God isn't even welcome location. They, being Israel, have deeply corrupted themselves, as is true in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. The days of Gibeah refer to a moment in Israel's history that you can read about in Judges chapter 19 through 21. It's literally the lowest point in Israel's recorded history. It is the lowest point. And if you don't believe me, go read it. We do not have time to go into it right now. Go read it. What they do is they essentially, they perform one of the most wicked crimes. They rape someone's concubine they cut her into pieces, they send her to all the 12 tribes, and then they start a civil war to do some kind of justice in that moment. It is one of the lowest points in Israel's history. And what he says is, just like your sin in that day, nothing has changed. You are just as wicked now as you were then, and actually the sin that you did commit is the same type of sin that you continue to commit. Nothing has changed. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah, and then you get this terrifying line from God. He will remember their iniquity, and he will punish their sins. That is a terrifying statement from God, because we know that the just condemnation for sin is death. That is the just and fitting punishment for sin, and not just temporal death, 
not just death in this lifetime, but an eternal death that is to be suffered. This is what happens when God remembers sin. He will remember their iniquity because they're not repenting, because they stay true to their sin, because they stay loyal to Baal over Yahweh. He will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. That's a terrifying statement. He will remember their iniquity. Hosea is being faithful to preach what we would call hellfire and brimstone preaching, which is that he is telling them there is a real punishment for sin. There is a real punishment for the wickedness that Israel is committing. And God, if they don't repent, will really remember their sin, and he will really deal out that condemnation that they have earned themselves. For we know that the wages of sin is death. The wages that you earn from sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The question that I have for you, as we, before we move on to the next section, is will you be faithful to preach the truth to people? Will you compromise on what the truth says for the sake of itching ears, or will you faithfully preach the truth? Will you be like Satan in the garden who says, you can eat the fruit and surely you shall not die? You can commit that sin and surely it won't kill you? Or are you going to be that rare Christian today in America who's going to say, that thing you think God is okay with because some of, someone who was a Christian told you God's okay with it, God's actually not okay with that. That is actually a sin and there is an actual punishment for that lifestyle. There is an actual punishment for that behavior. Because so many people claim to follow God and claim to follow Jesus, but they disagree with Jesus on marriage. They disagree with Jesus on holiness. They disagree with Jesus on sanctification. They disagree that Jesus is even the only way to heaven, but somehow they still want to call themselves Christians. And so the question is, are you going to be someone who's faithful to the truth, or are you going to find yourself among the number who's willing to compromise on truth for the sake of not being offensive to the people? Remember, this is the people of God who've been charged to hear the truth and to acknowledge it faithfully, and instead they become just like the culture that's around them and they participate in all the same practices and all the same actions, and they think that Yahweh is actually going to be okay with their sinful lives. But they look no different from the culture when it's all said and done. So here, we're going to get the history of Israel in three different metaphors that are going to explain to us that this situation Israel finds themselves in is not God being quick to the trigger in order to punish their sin. God has actually been extremely patient for hundreds of years at this point in time, to wait for Israel to return back to him. And you're going to get three pictures of just what God saw Israel to be and how they have corrupted themselves into this moment. And the first picture we get is the metaphor of grape in the wilderness. That's in verse 10, grapes in the wilderness. And he says this, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. That's I, God, found Israel. Like the first fruit on a fig tree in its first season, I saw your father's. So he's talking to the current generation and he's saying way back when, when you were in the wilderness, when you were in the desert, when I had just delivered you from bondage and captivity in Egypt, I found you and you were like a grape in the wilderness. You were this beautiful, precious thing, full of potential, full of opportunity. In fact, you were even like a young fig tree that bears its first fruit. You had all this glory ahead of you. You had all this potential, all of this sweetness, all of this splendor ahead of you. And I found you, and you were precious to me, and I could rejoice in you in the bond that we had formed together. He, God, delighted in Israel when he finds them. They're like a grape in the wilderness. They're a refreshment to him. He loves them. He set his affections on them. And that's when he saw their fathers. And then he says this, But they came to Baal Peor, and they consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. And they became detestable, like the thing that they have loved. What he's referring to there, Baal Peor, is something you can read about in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 5. Baal Peor is a location where the people of Israel first participated with the Canaanites in Baal worship. They participate for the first time in a cult ritual. They participate for the first time in child sacrifice. And they participate for the first time in intermarrying with the women in that land and essentially yoking themselves to Baal. And this is right before, right before this is when they are beautiful and precious to the Lord their God. And then they consecrate themselves to the thing of shame. They actually 
vow themselves to it. They make themselves one with this idolatrous God. And because they have done this, they become detestable like the thing that they loved. Baal is detestable to God. So for an Israelite to yoke themselves to Baal is for the Israelite to become detestable to God. The reason the Canaanites were in the promised land and getting kicked out of the promised land was because they were doing those things that were detestable to God. And Israel, rather than being the light, which is advancing the kingdom of God, they decide they want to be just like everybody else. And so they become just like everybody else. And the, the marriage and the, the discovery of the grape in the wilderness is very short-lived before that grape gets soured. And this is, again, just like Hosea's marriage in the beginning of this book, where he gets married to Gomer, and it's not even a few lines later where the first child is born, and Hosea goes, that's not my kid. You've been unfaithful to me. And God says the same thing about Israel. You were like a grape to me, but it wasn't long before you soured yourself. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Once again, the punishment that they have committed, or the punishment that they get is going to fit the crime that they committed. They want to yoke themselves to Baal, the fertility god. They want to perform these cult sex rituals in order to be fertile and have children and offspring. They want to consecrate their children to this false god and bring up their children in Canaanite worship. No kids for you. No conception, no birth, no children. God says, first, no birth, meaning you're not going to have any children born to you. Then he says, no pregnancy. You're not even going to have kids be conceived in the womb. And then he says, I'm actually going to prevent conception from happening because you have proven to me that any children and offspring that I give you, which I promised to you with Abraham, any children that I give you were supposed to be my children. You're supposed to teach them my statutes, my ways. You were supposed to remind them of my law. So if you're not going to do that, if you're going to raise them with the Baals, I'm not going to give you kids. Why would God give his offspring to the people of Israel just to have Israel lead them astray? So he's going to prevent them from having the kids anyway because he knows they're going to raise them up in a false system of worship. And then he says, even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. God is active in the blessing of Israel with children. You need to know this. When children are had, when conception is made, when life is formed, God is active in a role in making that conception happen. But God is also active at this moment in the punishment that he delivers to Israel. He's active both in the blessing and in the punishment. And unfortunately, today, we have a very passive view of God. We view him like a deity who set the world into motion and wound it up like a clock and is now kind of just letting things happen. And if you believe the blessings to be passively done by God, meaning you believe conception just kind of happens as a natural byproduct of life, then also you believe the punishment or not having kids to be some passive inconvenience or something that was produced by chance. But God says, my hand was directly in the birth and my hand is directly in the lack of birth as well. I am sovereign and providential and intimate over all of it. And this might seem harsh because God is saying no birth, meaning no children. And he's saying he's going to directly intervene to make sure that no children are going to be had. And this brings up the question of how is this fair for God to punish the children for the sin of the parents? Well, you need to know, and I won't dwell on this for very long, but there is such a thing which theologians will refer to as the age of accountability. And God is going to redeem the children and take them away from the Israelites before they are going to lead his children astray. And so he is going to collect them and keep them, and his grace is going to override the sin of Israel, and he's going to harvest them into his kingdom before the Israelites are going to corrupt them. And so although the children are perishing, and although there is no children being had, it is actually God's grace upon the children to keep them away from the wickedness of the Israelites. It is his grace. And he says, Woe to them when I depart from them, because he's going to remove his grace. And then he says, Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Ephraim is going to lead his children to death. So then Hosea is going to interject again, and he's going to now have what's called an imprecatory prayer, 
which means he's going to pray for God to punish Israel. It's kind of a weird concept for us. We typically don't pray for things like that to happen. And unless you're very sure of what you're praying, I would encourage you to not do things like this either. Hosea is a prophet who is heard directly from God. So he says with full confidence, give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Lord, I pray that your will would be done as you declared it to me. I pray that you will give Israel exactly the punishment that they deserve. He's sure of what he's saying, so he's praying for God's will to be done. Just as Jesus says, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the same type of prayer. He's just mirroring the will of God as it's been revealed to him. And then he continues and he says, Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more, and all their princes are rebels. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. Gilgal refers to the location where Saul was first anointed king over Israel. He says every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. Previously in Hosea, he's been identifying the fact that the leaders of Israel are the ones who are leading Israel astray into unrighteousness. And so he says that Gilgal, which is the symbolic place where the kingship is identified to, he's saying that is where the wickedness stems from. Their princes are all sinners. Their princes are rebels to me. Every evil of theirs exists and originates in Gilgal. This is the first time that they rebelled against me when they said, we don't want God to be king. We want a man to be king. This is their first sign of rebellion. Now they're going to continue on this. They're going to get exactly what they had coming to them. And in verse 16, again, we say that he is active in the punishment. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I'm going to drive them out of my house, actively drive them out. And I will love them no more, meaning my covenant love that was for them is not on them anymore because they have forsaken the covenant. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Again, God is taking an active role in the punishment. God is going to reject them primarily for their disobedience. They don't listen to him, so he's going to reject them from him. And he gives them an interesting curse. He says they shall be wanderers among the nations. And if you know anything about Genesis, this is the same curse that God gives Cain when Cain kills Abel. He casts Cain away from, and he says, Cain, your punishment is you're going to be a wanderer, and everyone's sword is going to be heavy against you, and you will be heavy against them. He gives Israel the same curse that he gave to Cain in Genesis 4. And what we know here is that everything is symbolic to us that the leaders are the ones who are corrupting the people. Remember, the leaders are the ones who are leading them astray. And primarily, Israel is not listening to God. And so, because Israel treasures things that are worthless, because Israel treasures things that are temporal, not of great value, they treasure the harvest and the idols, they're going to lose what is of matchless value, namely, a relationship with God and his favor. If they want to treasure the worthless things, they can have them. But God, who is of matchless value, they cannot have. You have to choose. And I'm so thankful for God's providence and the meditation this morning. The rich young ruler faced this as this shame choice. He can either have all the wealth of the world, all of these things that are of some value, or he can have what is of unending value, eternal value. And he, like Israel, does not choose correctly at that time. So, the question well, what else is left for us in Israel's history? Because I said that was only the first of two other, or three total metaphors. The second one is going to talk about Israel when they spread out in the land of Canaan. So first, it was the grapes in the wilderness, and it is going to be how he initially found them. And he's going to say, as, even as you were spreading out into the promised land that I gave you, you were a luxuriant vine. Even that goes wrongly for you. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more fruit it has, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. When they're described as a luxuriant vine, the picture you're supposed to get is as they're spreading through the land of Canaan, they had all of this providence from God. They had all of this blessing from the Lord, and he's giving them all of this land. And then as soon as he gives them enough room for them to become uh, complacent, 
they take all of the blessing, all of the good things that he's given them, and he says the more his fruit increased, which God provides, the more altars he built, and the more altars to God, because there was one place in which they could worship God. So they build altars to false gods. And as his country improved, as his borders expanded, as his prosperity increased, he improved his pillars, the places where he's going to worship Baal. So Israel takes all of the blessings that God gives them, all of the prosperity and abundance that God gives them, and they completely squander it. God gives them rest and victory, and they get complacent, and they forget God, just as he warns them in the book of Joshua not to do. Remember the Lord your God, who's going to bring you into this land and make you a nation and make you a people. And I fear that the church in America is guilty of much of the same. God has given us an amazing season in the last 200 years to grow large in number, to grow large in comfort without much persecution, like our brothers and sisters face all over the world and other nations. And in all of the abundance and all the prosperity and all of the wealth that he has given us, we have taken that opportunity to build nice large buildings and to pay pastors to buy million-dollar houses and we have completely squandered the gifts that we have been given by God. He's given us a season of abundance, and we have taken that season and we've gotten complacent and fat and eaten so much that we are now no longer fit for the job that we were originally given, which was namely to advance the kingdom of God. In fact, the church in America is so complacent that they actually hide behind and actually blend in almost perfectly with the culture. And if you don't believe me, you can drive all over Indianapolis, and if you drive on Meridian or any of the other main roads, you're going to see these massive buildings from churches whose denominations deny the inerrancy of Scripture and the deity of Christ and the infallibility of the Word of God and the sufficiency of the Word of God. And churches that have been able to do so because they don't face persecution where if they didn't cling to those things, their faith themselves would actually be lost. So they keep their faith because they've been upheld by the blessing of God they keep what they believe to be their faith and they grow fat and they sit on their butts and they do absolutely nothing to advance the kingdom and they deny the truths of God because of the abundance that, they gave, that he gave them. As the fruit increases, so do the altars that they build to their false gods. As their country improves, as their, exp as their denomination expands, they improve their pillars and their places of worship for the false gods which they truly are participating in worship with. Israel was guilty of this a long time ago, and unfortunately I fear that as a church in America at large, we are guilty of much the same today. But then in verse 2, the punishment's going to fit the crime, and so they must bear their own guilt. And this is a true statement on the atonement. If you do not repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, the punishment that Jesus bore on the cross was not for you. If you never repent, you are going to bear the full weight of your sin. Jesus stands and dies on the cross and says, I am dying so that all those who will believe on me will be saved and have everlasting life. John 3.16, that all who believe in him shall never perish but have everlasting life. But for those who don't believe, they will perish and they will have eternal and everlasting death. The atonement can count for you or it can't. And if you don't want Jesus' death to account for you, if you don't want the atonement to be yours that he purchased for you on the cross, you can reject it, but you just have to know that you will bear your own guilt. And that is, again, a terrifying thing, to bear your own guilt. I don't want to bear my own guilt. I need Jesus to stand in my place because I am terrified of the wrath of God. And Jesus provides an escape from that. He provides shelter from that. And he offers it freely to all who would believe on him. But you can't have it both ways. You can't deny the lordship of Jesus and also have him as your savior. If he's not Lord, he's not savior. They are going to reject then in verse 3 the king that they asked God for. It says, For now they will say, We have no king, for we did not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths and they make covenants so Judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. You'll remember that Israel was the one who initially asked for a king from God. And in doing so, God says to Samuel, give them a king 
Don't worry, Samuel. They're not rejecting you and your authority. They're rejecting me and my authority. So we're going to give them a king. And now we come to the end of the kingship line in Israel and they're being taken over by Assyria and they're going to be swept away into captivity. And at that moment, they're going to go off and say, we don't need a king. What good is he going to do us? There's, no, there's not even a nation to rule anymore. What good is the king going to do? And God is going to say, remember, Israel, what I warned you about? Remember, I told you that I am your leader, I am your king, and if I give you a king, if I give you this thing, you're going to eventually come to the realization that this is not a good thing to have. But Israel, in their stubbornness, requests a king, and God gives them exactly what they ask for. And here we come to the end of that story, end of that line, and we realize that Israel actually knows that the king was not of much value to them at all. They reject the kings that they ask for themselves. And God, in his sovereignty, is going to then go even one step further. Not only is he going to remove the kings, which are now faithless to God, but in verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria tremble, for the calf of beth which is the calf that they are worshiping regularly, its people mourn for it, and so do the idolatrous priests, those who rejoice over it and over its glory. What glory really can a calf have, though? For it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. What's happening here is God is proving his sovereignty over the false gods by removing them. If they want to worship false gods, that's great. He's just going to go ahead and have a nation which doesn't even worship him, take the false god down from its throne, and carry it off. And notice in verse 6, the thing has to be carried. What kind of a God is that where the people have to carry it around? It's an inanimate object. It can do nothing. It has no power, no authority, no sovereignty. It's nothing. It is a thing. So instead of this God being living and active and being able to defend itself, it's just going to get carried off into captivity. It can't even walk over to captivity. It can't even be led there. It has to be carried by people. And we know that the ark was also carried, but the ark can defend itself because when people reach out to touch the ark, they get struck dead. And when the ark gets captured by the Philistines, the ark actually crushes the idol Dagon in its own temple. And the ark is a living and active representation of the one true God. And it is a living thing. And these idols, they're not living. They can't defend themselves. And so if there's no Israelites to protect them, there's no army to defend, they're just going to get carried off. And the idol isn't going to get carried off for any reason other than to be melted down for all its scrap parts and presented to the king as a picture of wealth, not as a picture of worship, as a picture of wealth. The Assyrian king does not care for the idol that he just crushed. And Ephraim is going to realize at that moment that they've been put to shame and they will be ashamed of their idol because they're going to finally be wrought out to be a fraud. It's going to finally be seen for what it is, which is a false god, an inanimate object. Their god is a thing, and they worship this with all their might, with all their harvest, with all their abundance. And God's just going to call them out for it. Once again, the punishment fits the crime. And this punishment continues to go on, and it continues in verse 7, Samaria's king shall perish, being the king of Israel. Like a twig on the face of the waters, they're just going to get blown around and washed away. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Now, if you're a good student of Scripture, you'll recognize that phrase, because that is the same thing that Jesus says in the New Testament, people who reject him will have to say on the day of God's wrath. They will say to the hills, cover us, and fall on us. They will cry out to the boulders to cover them. And the reason they have to cry out to this is because these people are going to experience the wrath of God. To reject God is to receive this punishment where they're going to have to cry out, cover us, and fall on us. They're asking to die because they're enduring the wrath of God and they would rather die than to continue to suffer. And Jesus quotes this in the New Testament and he says, if you reject me, this is going to be your fate too. The punishment for rejecting God is the same punishment that you get for rejecting Jesus. Because Jesus is God. People often say that Jesus never claimed to be deity. He never claimed to be God. He was just a good teacher. He makes, at that moment, an explicit claim to be God. Because to reject Jesus is to accept the same punishment for rejecting God. 
He's making a claim to lordship. And there are many people who are comfortable with a God. They're just not comfortable with Jesus Christ as he's been revealed. But to reject Jesus is to reject God. Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you reject me, you reject the one who sent me. You can't have God without Jesus. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. If you reject Jesus, if you don't believe on the name of the Lord, you will not be saved. But then he continues again in verse 9. He says, the days of Gibeah, referring again to that wicked sin, the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel, for there they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, that's God, when I please, I will discipline them, and the nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. God says, when it's my timing, when I think that punishment is right, I'm going to rally up the nations, and I'm going to have them swept away. Israel is not to understand Assyria coming to punish them as Assyria being a more mighty force than them. They are to understand this as God's direct hand of intervention prophesied by Hosea as God exacting his timing on Israel. He says, when I please, I will discipline them. That is God sovereignly declaring his authority over the nation of Assyria. But we have and a little bit of time, so 11. Israel is described in this metaphor as a calf. It starts off in the first verse. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. And I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Israel was chosen by God to serve a very specific purpose. They were described in this moment as a trained heifer, which has a job, by the way. Its job is to plow and to fertilize the land, and to break up the ground, and to make sure that the seed spread and the harvest comes. A heifer has a job, and Israel had a job as well. Their job was to faithfully serve the Lord their God, and to expand his kingdom into the nations. But they forsook their job, and he says, he challenges them, he says, I gave you the job, Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow himself, this is what they must do, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. God gives them his exhortation, the expectation of them. But then in verse 13, we get a very sharp contrast of what they actually do with the instructions God gives them. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. The exhortation God gives them is in sharp contrast to what actually happens. He gives them his law, he gives them his commandments, and they don't follow them. They actually go explicitly against those things. They don't reap steadfast love. They don't break up their fallow ground. They don't follow the Lord, and so therefore they get punished accordingly. And he says, and this is interesting in verse 12, he says that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. God is sovereign over the growth that Israel is to experience. This is not a legalistic transaction where if Israel does these things, God is going to give them certain benefits. They are supposed to be faithful to the task that they have been given, and they should trust that God is then going to rain righteousness upon them. It is a promise of God. God is not a genie or some kind of machine where if you do A, B, and C, he will deliver and punch out D. That is not who God is. He is a living and active God. But he gives a promise to them, which is if you sow righteousness, if you break up your fallow ground, if you follow my laws and my commandments, I will rain righteousness upon you. But again, that's not what they do. They work very hard instead on their sin. He has given them a fair neck, or in other words, a strong neck to do the job that they have been given to do. And instead of working hard to follow God and disciplining themselves to do those things, they work really hard on worshiping Baal. And they do really good things as it relates to reaping a harvest. And they build altars to Baal. And instead of working really hard for God with the gifts that he's given them, they work really hard on their sin to worship their false gods. But then in verse 14 and 15, we get the punishment because they trusted their armies. And so God says, therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among the people and your fortresses shall be destroyed. 
As Shalaman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed to pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall utterly, shall be utterly cut off. Now this event is historically not recorded anywhere, but we are to understand that this is something everyone knows about because they didn't even have to provide a context for it. He gives a name of a king and a reference of a battle, and they know exactly what he's talking about, which is a battle that was so brutal, we get a one-line description, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. That's a gruesome picture of battle. It's a gruesome picture of loss. And Israel, who, as we saw in the previous verse, trusted in the multitude of their warriors, that power will be overthrown by God, sovereignly. That's a terrifying battle. But, then again, we know that God's punishment on sin is severe. To trust in a false god is to open up the opportunity for God to say, you can't worship that thing, I've ordained you for a specific purpose. I've created you in this world for one task, which is to bring me glory. The chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever, to bring him the most glory that he can get. And when man doesn't do this, when they don't fulfill their responsibility, God has every right to punish them for their wickedness. They have one task, one job, one thing to get done in this lifetime, and so many of us spend our whole lives doing nothing related to bringing God glory. If you want to know how seriously God takes sin, you have to look no further than the cross. If you think the picture of mothers being dashed into pieces with their children is bad, you have to look at the cross, a picture of execution for Jesus bearing the wrath of God. It is God the Father who is pouring out his wrath on the Son, Jesus Christ. It is not anything else. God's wrath poured out on Jesus. If you look to the cross, you see exactly how God views sin. And unless you take that picture seriously, how seriously God takes sin, you will never fully understand your own wickedness and you will never fully enjoy and repent and finally be in right relationship with the Lord. It is a picture of God's wrath, but also it is a picture of God's love. How heavily you understand the wrath of God and the picture of the cross is also how wonderfully you see his love. If it's a small punishment that Jesus endured, there's really not a whole lot of love and grace that's been extended on the other end of that. But if he saves you from a grand death, an eternal death for all time, and he saves you back into relationship with himself, you see his love also in that full eternal sense because he provides Jesus as a substitute for the sin that you earned. And he won't remember your iniquity. He will forget your iniquity because he already put it on his son, Jesus Christ. And you won't bear your own sin because Jesus has borne that sin for you. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And instead of us standing before God's judgment seat one day and having to answer for every sin we committed, Jesus puts on his cloak of righteousness over us. And he says, not this one, God, he's my child. And he walks us right into heaven as our advocate, as our mediator on our behalf. Nothing we do, but everything that Christ has done. And if you will repent and believe on Jesus Christ today, he will be faithful on the day of judgment to stand in your place as well. Let's pray.